In every small town or medium-sized town all across America, there is typically one of them. One of them. They are the high school athletic hero. They are the one who can move the ball, kick the ball, throw the ball, take the ball, do whatever it needs to be with the ball. And they are the hero, the basketball team, the football team. Every game, they're the MVP player. Okay, And if, when it comes to meeting the requirements of, of athletic glory, they meet everything on the list. You know, they've got the bod, they do the workout, they're disciplined. Only some of them you meet, right, they're 15 and they know they're the MVP. And it's like the girlfriend of the week club. I mean, you know, you've been in some of these small towns, right? And there's a part of that MVP player and he knows he's that good. He knows he's got it. He knows he meets all the requirements of the, of the list to be an athletic hero. Some of you went to school with a Mr. or Miss Brainiac. You know what I'm talking about? He or she, every test was 100%, 99.8%. Maybe you are a Mr. or Miss Brainiac and you're here today. Okay, the prof or the teacher would always call on them and when they would speak, you could see the prof or the teacher, they would just smile and bask in the glory. And when they got their test back or their paper back, they wouldn't put it in their folder, right? It lays out on the desk so that you can see the A. All right? I was a straight-A student when I was in high school, but that was back in the early 1980s, and back then we were called nerds. Nerds were not cool. Today we have geeks. Geeks are cool. Everybody wants to be a geek. Everybody wants to date a geek because the geeks will inherit the earth. Or they'll at least own 90% of it. Okay? In the early 1980s, not so. It was nerdville. And so I was just a nerd. And, and I knew I was a misfit in high school. I knew it. I was not athletic enough. I was not tall enough. I was in my, my community. I was not farm bred enough. You know? Everyone in my high school, they all wore flannel shirts. Woo, thought we were something else farming for, you know, Indiana, whatever. Okay? It's why I loved being a children's pastor in the 19, late 1990s. Children's pastors had, people do, did not have expectations of children's pastors back then. It was awesome. You could be slightly overweight. You could wear out-of-date clothes that were totally uncool. You could be uncool yourself. No one cared. As long as the kids were happy, it was awesome. They had no expectations. There was no list of things you had to be or do to be the consummate children's pastor. I always felt bad for the youth pastors back then because they had a list. They had to be thin, athletic, play the guitar, have a soul patch, have a soul patch. And that made, you know, they were cool. They had to buy their clothes at the Gap. This is before we had Abercrombie and Fitch and Hollister and all these other stores. They didn't exist back then. You bought your clothes at the Gap. They had to have the latest clothes. I felt bad for the youth pastors because there was always this list of things they had to be and do in order to be the consummate youth pastor. Every group in America has a list, a list of requirements of what you need to be and what you need to do in order to be accepted or successful in that group. Every group in America has one. And if you meet the list, if it's when it comes to athletic, if you're on the varsity team, if you can move the ball, hit the ball, kick the ball, you're disciplined, you're buff, etc., boom, you're in. Junior varsity, your scoring ratio is like 
everybody knows. You don't make the list. You don't meet the requirements. You're not enough. Every group has one. Some of you here in your group, you meet the list. And it's like, yeah, I meet the list. Some of you do not. And you know it. You know, I do not meet the list. And ladies, don't tell me there isn't a list when it comes to moms in America, okay? Have you not ever gone to PAA or the pediatrician with your sick child and you see her in the waiting room? You know what I'm talking about, tall, thin, cute little capris, makeup all put together. The kids are perfect. She always has at least one daughter whose hair is braided, and you look at her hair and you think, that was a half an hour right there just to do that hair. And there's a part of you that wants to hate her. And then there's a part of you that's slightly envious of her. Come on. Every group in America has a list of what it means to be the consummate athlete, the consummate brainiac, the consummate mom. Every group has a list. Middle school has a list. Lawyers, doctors have a list. Teachers have a list. Uh, married people, you want to have the consummate marriage, right? You've got to act a certain way. You've got to be lovey-dovey in public and do the googly eye thing, and then everybody goes, oh, they must have an awesome marriage. Right? I mean, every group has a list. Maybe that's why so many people think God rolls that way too. So many people think that with God, there's a list. There's a list of do's and don'ts. And if you do certain things and don't do certain things, that's what makes you acceptable with God. That's what makes you successful with God. And maybe it's you need to be nice. You need to be content. You need to be holy. Uh, Maybe it's things like you need to read your Bible. You need to pray. You need to go on mission. And every religion has a list. Buddhism, despite all their Zen moments, there's a list. And they rock, peck each other if they're not in the Zen enough or they don't meditate enough. I mean, there's Buddhists have a list. Jews have a list. Muslims have a list. Uh, Mormons have a list. Did you go on mission? You didn't go on mission? Your parents didn't make you go on mission? I mean, Mormons have a list. Jehovah Witnesses have a list. Christians have a list. Everybody has a list. There is a doctrine, a Christian doctrine, that flies in the face of that way of thinking. That Christian doctrine is called grace. The doctrine of grace claims that God does not roll that way at all. That to be accepted, to be successful with God is not about your performance, but everything to do with who God is and what his heart's like. And so today, I want to tell you, I want you to learn, I want you to get, I want you to believe that when it comes to grace, it isn't earned, it's offered. When it comes to grace, it isn't earned, it's offered. And nowhere is that more evident than in the life and gospel of Matthew. There are four accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible, four accounts. They're all different. John is... uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Boom. In a galaxy far, far. I mean, you get into Revelation, and then you're like, John, are you on LSD? I mean, what's going on? This is weird stuff in here. Miracles, signs, wonders. John, that's John. That's his account of the life of Jesus. Then there's Luke. Luke is the doctor. Luke is the educated one. Luke is the one who does, Most Honorable Theophilus, I would like to give you an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Many people have written about him, but it all began with a, a priest named Zechariah, and off he goes on his story. Okay, there's Luke. And then Mark. Mark is big drama. Mark's the one that's like, kaboom! You know, he's just wanting to, he's like the guy that's hiding in the closet and jumps out and scares you witless. 
That's Mark, okay? You know, so his gospel starts off, I want to tell you about the news of Jesus Christ. Lo, there's a voice in the wilderness. Boom, there it is. Boom, the first fruit of uses. That's Mark. Matthew is different. Matthew begins with a list of names. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat. And it's, have you ever done the Bible reading thing and you've gotten into the first chapter of Matthew and you've thought, (laughs) I did that for years. I just was like, why are there all these names in here? I don't need this, this boring stuff, Snoozeville. In the ancient world, genealogies were important. And genealogies were a way to establish where you came from, what your roots were. Um, And when the ancient peoples would write about their kings or their rulers or the special people, they would always kind of gloss out, they would not mention the bad stuff, but they would always talk about the good stuff. It was what the king did well and the battles that he won and what an awesome leader he was, which is why the Bible is so weird. Because the Bible is full of examples of people who just mess up and don't hit the bar, don't meet the bar, don't hit the ball. Um, And so Matthew's gospel has a list of people. So, you know, it's this begat, begat, begat. So let's let's just get into it. Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, and this is what Matthew writes, and this is why I think it's very unusual, all right? Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Solomon. (laughs) Oh wait, we're in church, okay. Time change got to me. All right. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of who? Oh, if you were here last week, you know about that turkey. Judah? Okay, if you were going to compare Judah, the guy who sold his brother into slavery, the guy who went and had sex with what he thought was a prostitute, only it was his daughter-in-law because he didn't do what he was supposed to do to take care of his daughter-in-law. Judah, okay, that guy. If you're going to stack him up against Joseph, okay, Joseph was a little cocky at 15, but he goes off to Egypt. And what does he do? He's faithful. He's faithful. And about God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. I mean, he's getting promoted. And then it's like for such a time as, you know, boom, kachaka, right? Joseph. So who's the better of the two? Judah or Joseph? Joseph. Who makes the list? Judah. Interesting. If you're a Jew reading this, you're like, Judah and his brothers? No, Joseph was the better man. Then it goes on, Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So not only are you reminded of what a scoundrel Judah was, but it's like put in large stereo. Because Tamar does this thing where she lies, and she dresses up like a prostitute, and she gets, you know, Judah gets her pregnant. I mean, the whole nine yards, there's all this deception and stuff going on. And, and so, Boom. Not only is it a woman, but it's a woman who does things, and you're like, I don't think you should be doing that, you know, da-da-da-da. So it goes on from there. Uh, uh, Ram was the father of da 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 Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You all know who Rahab is? Rahab was, uh, Rahab had the misfortune, poor, poor woman, 
she had the misfortune of being in the wrong city at the wrong time, in the wrong culture, in the wrong profession. She was wrong, all of it, just wrong. She was a prostitute in the city of Jericho that God had decided, you know, nuclear explosion Jericho, I'm going to wipe them out Jericho. And there she is, listed. Matthew is the only one in the whole Bible who lists Rahab in the ancestry of King David and Jesus, only one. Only time you'll find this in all of the Bible. I think it's a statement of grace. He's setting us up for what he's going to tell us in his gospel about Jesus. By grace, God reached into that city of Jericho and plucked out one woman and her family who was adopted into God's family, who married, had kids and grandkids, and among those great-great-grandkids are King David, and Jesus, the Son of God himself. Boom. Statement of grace. In Matthew's list, we get people who do not meet the requirements. Look at verse 6, the very next verse. Jesse was the father of King David. We don't know about him. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was who? Bathsheba. And who is Bathsheba? The widow of Uriah. Not David was the father of Solomon, the wisest man in all the world. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, period. No, what does he put in there? This little phrase, the widow of Uriah, so that when you're reading it, you're, you go, oh yeah, David didn't go to war that one time, and he saw her on the roof, and then he said, she looks good to me, and then they did that thing, and then he killed him. Oh, David? Man after my own heart, David, God's own heart, David, you dog. Boom, there's her name in this list. There is no pattern of righteousness at all in the list of names that you find in Matthew's gospel. I never saw this until last year, 2012. No pattern. You have in this list are adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, Gentiles, Good kings and wicked kings. They're all there in the list. I think it would help to be reminded who wrote this list. This is Matthew. Matthew didn't always go by Matthew. Matthew had a different name when Jesus came along. Matthew at that time was known as Levi, the tax collector. Levi, the tax collector, the telones, the tax collector. Tax collectors... To be a tax collector meant that you held a government post that was hated throughout the Roman Empire because of the widespread corruption. So Rome, you know, you were a tax collector, and Rome expected you to turn over a certain amount of money each month to the emperor. Most tax collectors also then extorted additional money and put it in their own pockets. Corruption everywhere. Everybody hated tax collectors. To become a tax collector, you actually purchased the office from another person. That's how you became a tax collector. You just bought it. It was like a shrewd business deal. Levi was one of those people. That's who Levi was. If God had a list of what you needed to be and do to be acceptable, Levi was not going to make that cut. He was not going to make the list. 
tax collectors were in the Bible, in the New Testament, tax collectors are always paired with another group of people. Tax collectors and sinners. There you go. Tax collectors and sinners. Used car salesmen and sinners. Porn producers and sinners. Congressmen and sinners. <laughs> it's not a good pairing, okay? Not a good pairing at all. But Jesus calls Levi, and Levi follows. And so, that happens a few chapters later. Let's get into that, all right? So, who was this guy that wrote this list under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 and following. Okay? Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Simple invitation. Hey, follow me. And the tax collector gets up and does just that. I mean, it's weird. Weird that a tax collector would even feel like he was welcomed by a Jewish rabbi, let alone a famous one. Kapow, Jesus, you know, healing Jesus. The buzz Jesus, all right? Let's go to the next couple of verses. Later, verse 10. Later, verse 10, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such wonderful people? Oh, wait, what does it say? Why does your teacher eat with such scum? You can hear it in the word that they used disreputable sinners in the eyes of the God squad, in the eyes of Pharisees, these were people who didn't tithe. <gasps> they didn't tithe and they didn't follow the rituals of purity. So, you know, Pharisees love certain kinds of ways to wash your hands. <gasps> oh, a dead animal, let me walk over here. You know, there were all these rules. And the disreputable sinners were the people that was like, oh man, are you kidding me? I'm not going to bother with that. Sinner. Okay, so tax collectors and sinners, and these are who these people are. And so Matthew, Matthew throws this party in the afternoon, and the party was full of Judas and Tamars and Rahabs. That's who's at this party. And the God squad is upset, okay? They're upset because Jesus is at the table with them. And back then, to have table fellowship with somebody kind of meant acceptance. And they're like, what are you doing, Jesus? Are you really want to identify with tax collectors and sinners? Whoa! God doesn't approve of that. God doesn't approve of them. What are you doing? And they are clearly upset. And so Jesus responds to their complaining. And that's the next couple of verses, verse 12 and following. When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Brilliant, right there. Verse 13, he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not to offer sacrifices, for I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners. The Greek word there is mathete, mathete, go and learn. Jesus is insulting the God squad. Normally in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus says, go and find, go and find. 
go and find. You, when you read the scripture, you'll find it says this. You'll, you'll find that it, this time he says, go and learn. And basically what he's in, insinuating is, y'all haven't read the book of Hosea, have you? It's a burning statement, okay? Y'all haven't read the book of Hosea, have you? Because if you have, you, if you had, you would know that I want love, not sacrifice. I want you to know me. It's not about your offerings. And Jesus is saying to the God squad, you know what's missing in your life? Grace. Oh, you agree with me in principle. You agree with me in principle, but not in practice. You say it's all about mercy, but you don't show any. Go and learn. That afternoon in Levi's house, his home became a place of grace. A place where he had experienced the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, and he was so excited about it that he brought all his friends in, and he wanted them to celebrate with him and see what he had himself had experienced. It became a place of grace in the afternoon. And it changed him forever. And he, he doesn't go by Levi anymore. He goes by Matthew. Matthew. Not, Math, not Levi the tax collector. Matthew, the disciple of Jesus. It's a game changer. So let me ask some questions, community of faith, all right? On the whole, on the whole, all things considered, how do you see yourself? How do you see yourself? Do you tend to see yourself as sick, like Levi? Or do you tend to see yourself as healthy, like the Pharisees? If you had been there outside Levi's house that afternoon, would you have been questioning Jesus? I mean, come on, when people are posting this Facebook stuff and you're like, oh, I cannot believe they went to the White House and they had lunch with President Obama, they're going to help. Have you had those thoughts? <laughs> what? I'm being serious. Okay? If you had been there, would you be questioning Jesus? The God squad's always, you know, how can you, you know, how can you do that? How can you accept them? How can you identify with them? Or would you be the person who's outside and you're not going to go in because you're afraid to face Jesus because you know what you've done? And you know the life that you've lived, and you don't even want to look him in the face. Would that be you? Where would you fall that afternoon? Do you believe you need to clean up your life before God will accept you? Do you believe that? Do you make sure that other people see and hear your good deeds so that they can go, Woo! See, either you're confident that you don't meet God's requirements or you're confident that with enough time you sure can. Where do you fall on that continuum of confidence? You need to know that. Here's the thing about God's grace. It isn't earned, it's offered. It isn't earned, it's offered. Jesus invited Matthew and he said, follow me. And he invites you and me to do the same. He would say to you and to me today, follow me. And it's not just a one-time thing. He wants to lead you into a life of grace. Not just a one-time thing. So, so many Christians I meet, grace was what got them to say yes to God. And they were like, this is awesome. 
and they said yes, and they accepted God's grace, and they unwrapped it, and they put, took it into their life. And then somewhere along the road, six months later, two years later, five years later, they find themselves on an ongoing basis in their relationship with God, trying to measure up, trying to get good enough so God will like them. And when bad things happen in their life, they're convinced, they're absolutely convinced, God's punishing me, just like Judah and his brothers thought. Oh, this is... God's thumbing me because I didn't go to church enough. God's thumbing me because I didn't give enough. God's thumbing me. And then they do a few good things or something good's happened and they're convinced. It's because it's they did the right things and maybe they're finally in with God. Weirdest thing about how that plays out. No, 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 no. If you started off with grace, it's grace the whole way. It's grace every day. It's offered to you and me every day. New every day, grace. It's never earned, always offered. See, when grace gets a hold of you, it changes you on the inside, and it impacts the people around you, so much so that you actually become a conduit of God's grace into the world. I want to tell you about a couple of people who did just that. The first is this woman named, what's her name? Mame Tally. Mame Tally. Shocked the world in 1997. Mame Tally is her name, okay? So 1997, here's what happened. Back in 1991, Mame was minding her own business, in her home, only there was an intruder, there was a burglar. He broke into the house, he was armed, her son tried to intervene, and the burglar shot him in the throat. He lived another three years as a paraplegic in a hospital and finally died three years later of pneumonia. So what became a shooting with a robbery now became murder. So now they had to go back and try him for something new because he killed the man. And so in the 1997 sentencing, she shocked the entire city of Pittsburgh. When it came before he was sentenced, she asked to address the judge in the court, and this is what she said. I loved my son very much, but so many things have happened since then. I want the court to know that I forgive this young man because God forgave me, and I'm no better. And then she stood up from where she was, and she walked over to the defendant's table, and she hugged him. The judge was beside himself. I believe he said something to the effect of, in all my years on the bench, I have never seen this. In a word, grace. What did that burglar deserve? Give him life, baby. Lock, lock him away, throw away the key. You do garbage, you get garbage. You, get, you have coming around what you do. You reap what you sow. Boom. But she showed grace. Totally weird. Totally weird. I have friends, I had dinner with them last night. They're big Ohio State University fans. Pray for them. Pray for them, Lord. Okay? OSU this, OSU that. OSU. Okay, so it's always OSU. OSU had an amazing football team in the 1970s that was coached by Woody Hayes. Woody Hayes had a reputation of being like George Patton. I don't know if you know your history, but George Patton was not Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> George Patton was almost fired like 15 times before World War II was over. 
slapping a soldier, calling him names, swearing like a sailor, the whole nine yards. Okay, so Woody Hayes was exactly like George Patton. If you don't know who George Patton is, maybe you know who Bobby Knight was. Bobby Knight in Indiana was the same thing. He would, you know, he'd get so mad, he'd pick up chairs and throw them at you. You know, Bobby Knight. Anger Bobby Knight. Okay, so Woody Hayes was like that. He ran a great team, but he had anger problems. And one day, there was a, uh, there was a, there was an issue, a foul or something. I don't even know my sports, but there was a, uh, the player on the other team, Woody Hayes got up from his seat, went over, and punched the guy in the neck, felling him. Well, a brawl ensues, and the next day, all over the media, it's like, fire Woody Hayes, get rid of this jerk. You know, they were finally done. All the people of Ohio, Sports Illustrated, nobody was on his side, and he had to quit. He had to quit because he knew by the end of the day they'd fire him if he didn't quit. Well, Tom Landry knew about this. Tom Landry at the time was the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. This is 1978 when this happened, okay? So there's the big event in New York City that Landry normally takes his wife to. And do you know what he decided to do instead? He invited Woody Hayes, punched the other player in the throat, Woody Hayes, jerk Woody Hayes, patent Woody Hayes. He invited Woody Hayes to be his guest at this big event. So in comes, you know, the star of sports of the time, Mr. You know, Tom Landry, the Dallas Cowboys. Oh! And who does he have with him but despicable Woody Hayes? This is what he wrote about it later. I figured that since everybody else was beating up on him, he needed somebody to put an arm around him and tell him that he still loved him. You know what that was? Grace. Grace. You and I are recipients of God's grace. And that should and will change us and change how we roll with other people. Eventually, you and I will become conduits of God's grace. We can't help it because that's what we've been shown. Right? And what I want you to know today is that grace is never earned, but it's always offered. And it's available for you today. And it's free.